Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to OnScript. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I just wanted to remind you that we have a live event coming up in San Antonio at the Little Ryan Prost House on November 19th at 8 p.m. And we'd love to see you there. We're going to have Dr. Sandra Glan talking about her book, Nobody's Mother, Artemis of the Ephesians and Antiquity in the New Testament. And there's going to be free food and drinks. So uh, come on out. Even if you're um, not attending the SBL AAR meeting, you can still come to the event, but it will coincide with that. So that's November 19th, and info will be on our website. So you can check that out and hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. Our guest today is Dr. Jenny Matheny, Associate Professor of Christian Studies at Truett Theological Seminary at Baylor University. Jenny has wide-ranging interests in gender studies, trauma studies, and areas like dress hermeneutics, which maybe we could talk about. Um, <laughs> today, we're talking about her book, Judges 19 to 21 in Ruth, Canon as a Voice of Answerability, published by Brill. Jenny, welcome to OnScript. Oh, thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah, it's good to have a fellow Regent grad um, on the podcast. And <laughs> yeah. uh, we had uh, the same professors at Regent. And uh, I'm glad this finally happened. We've been trying to make this happen for a while. So good oh, to have you. Me too. Oh, it's great to be here. So how, how did you land in this world of biblical studies? Did you, um, as a young child, have an epiphany while on the <laughs> playground that you know, work in text and translation or what was your future? Oh, so much. Actually, this is actually a really interesting story that weaves into my time at Regent um, in a really fascinating way. I actually grew up quite afraid of the Old Testament. Um, I had a family member that thought frogs were evil and she threw my Kermit away when I was young. <laughs> Oh, no. And so I actually thought I was really afraid of the Old Testament. I'm like, man, people that get into the Bible are weird. She was amazing and had these incredible stories of faith. But unlike you and I, um, was never, you know, afforded the chance to take biblical hermeneutics with Ian Proven. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I remember just kind of having this aversion to the Old Testament. But then growing up, this strong sense of the presence of the Lord, you know, so I was like really like uh, loud about my faith in high school, but don't ask me where anything is in the Bible. Um, and so then I ended up going to Bible college to sort of unpack this because I thought, wow, I'm really like, you know, into my faith, but I really don't know what I believe. <laughs> um, and so I ended up going to a Bible college and there. I remember, um, sorry, this might end up taking the whole podcast, but um so yeah, I'll try to wrap this up quickly. So anyways, I remember I was dating this guy and he's like, you know, Moses. And I'm like, I don't know who that is. <laughs> and so I seriously, this was not, definitely not on my agenda I thought this guy child. was going to say like, hey, do you want to do devotions together? You know, yeah. that was uh, oh, often the we had that too. <laughs> Bible college pickup. And I'm like, nah, <laughs> no. Uh, oh yeah, the Bible, oh my goodness, Bible college. And the whole like, yeah, get your MRS degree. I remember being like, what are people talking about? You know, um, and so, yeah, so I actually ended up getting my um, undergraduate degree um, in biblical literature, but didn't ever think about what I would do with it, you know, thinking ministry, that kind of thing. Lo and behold, end up at Regent College, and my husband was going for a degree, and I took a 
Old Testament theology course with Bruce Walkey. Yeah. Um, it was a free spouse course. <laughs> and I just like started tearing up in that class. And I thought, wow, I want to know the Bible like that. Like just Good. the way, right, that old, that theology does that, pulls yeah. together these themes and these broad, beautiful brushstrokes. And um, so I ended up kind of accidentally getting a master's in Old Testament while I was there. We had two young kids and it was like, accidentally. So it's funny because yeah. now I look back and I thought, well, if I knew where I would end up, I would have done things so differently. But I think there's a also a gift to not knowing um, because I felt like I was able to be very present with my family. And yeah. uh, and I probably would have been like, you know, super focused on, you know, other things. Um, but anyway, so lo and behold, I ended up with this accidental master's in Old Testament. Um and then later, uh, we went to church plant in Oregon, and somebody said, you should you should adjunct at George Fox. And I thought, oh, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about the academy. It didn't, I didn't really have any background in yeah. that. My family, you know, they're awesome, but, you know, they, they didn't, you know, go through to school and all of that. And so um, it was a very foreign concept to me. And so I ended up actually, uh, I went ahead and, uh, and applied to do this adjunct thing and I uh, ended up getting a position. And so a few years in, I thought, oh, my goodness, like, I love teaching. Um, and so I think Dang. it was my maybe third year of adjuncting to all sorts of courses. And I thought, yeah, I would love to do this full time. Um, and so the fun thing was after I left Regent, um, and this might actually kind of connect to some of the reasons I got into the work I did. Yeah. Was after leaving Regent, right? We leave Regent and we're like, oh, how do we stay connected in this way? The community there is so... It's just so rich. It's hard to describe it, right? Like it just changes your life. And I remember a friend from Hebrew class and we thought, oh, let's, she went back to work uh, at her her regular job and I'm at home with the kids and starting to adjunct a little. And we were like, let's translate Hebrew together. So we'd Skype. Do you remember what that was? Skype. Yeah. <laughs> back in the day. And so we actually uh, went through the texts of Judges 19 through 21 in Ruth. This no is where way. all my work came from. Um, and it's because of Ian Proven, <laughs> because I remember in class, I don't know if you remember us going through those chapters, and I just remember leaving with this sense of what is happening with these, yeah, <laughs> these yeah. this text, like what is, it just, so much of it, it just seemed strange, mm. right? It was mm. a very hard text. And so, yeah, through that time, just Skyping with my friend, Tammy Enixon, uh, and, and translating Hebrew, like once a week, I think I started seeing all these connections with the text. Um, before I even knew what intertextuality was. And so it was a really fun kind of way that I got drawn into this project um, and then on into studies and, and PhD and all of that. So anyways, a little bit of background there. It's a cool <laughs> yeah. story of origin. So uh, just yeah. as a reminder to people listening, so the book is called Judges 19 to 21 and Ruth, mm -hmm. which is what you were translating uh, during right. that time. Um, so in, in your, your book, you are drawing these two texts into connection with one another, and you're using the literary theory of Mikhail Bakhtin. So could you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about Bakhtin and right. some of the key contributions of his work that we should know about? Absolutely. So Mikhail Bakhtin is this brilliant Russian literary theorist and philosopher who has been profoundly influential Um in so many areas, and he, and especially biblical studies, mm -hmm. um, his work influenced Julia Kristeva, who has actually been looked at, you know, as the one to really get moving this intertextuality uh, stuff that we all use, um, and 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 of course, and she also used Sassur. And so, it's been interesting that his work has just profoundly helped us, I think, read read better, right? Um, and 
it was interesting too when I started. I remember uh, somebody mentioning to me, um, "Oh, no one's going to be doing Bakhtin anymore," and <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, I was like, he's just such a perfect fit for the method I wanted to use." And then it's always nice, you know, as I'm going along uh, with my research, that oh, these books are coming out. Actually, one from your colleague Brittany Melton on the Megalote. Yeah. Who uses Bakhtin and Shelley Songbird and so yeah, and my my former professor Carol Newsom as well. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. Actually, yeah. her the way she thinks about genre actually Not, has been really helpful for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've decided. Uh, I don't know if if well, you probably read some of her work, but um, yeah, and been in her classes. Uh, the prototype theory from cognitive mm-hmm. sciences. Yeah, I love that where it sort of looks yeah. at how different texts belong but don't quite belong and Ruth's genre fits that so well and so she uses this category of like typical and atypical Mm -hmm. so you have like birds and then you have atypical birds like penguins and so I decided Ruth is a penguin (laughs) right (laughs) kind of fits doesn't fit (laughs) with all the genre so anyways um back to Bakhtin's so a lot of his work deals with memory different ways that social worlds come together. Dialogism is this broad umbrella term that's used to signify the breadth of his work. It it ventures into the literary, artistic, philosophical, uh, social linguistic ideology and concepts. Uh, It embodies the sense of mutual interaction in different voices. And I think one of the things I've appreciated about his work is how, even as a reader, the reader takes into account our position before the text and what we bring to it in the conversation as well. Um, and so it, the thing about Bakhtin's work is it allows multiple voices to be present and yet retain their individuality. And so texts are able to be interrelated and influ- influence each other similar um, to these voices in dialogue. And with Ruth and Judges, uh, 19 through 21, I actually took them as like two separate voices in my work. And then put them in dialogue together to see Mm. what could become. And so that was sort of, I thought, just a really helpful method because you hear so much of these texts are in dialogue. And I'm like, how? (laughs) Right. I want to tease that out and kind of see how that works. I was just going to mention just a couple terms briefly that of his that I found so helpful with my method. Um, One is the utterance. And this is Bakhtin's fundamental unit of discourse. The thing I appreciate about the utterance is that it encompasses the verbal and the nonverbal in literature. And one of the things I think is so fascinating with that is with Hebrew gaps, right? right. Like, yeah. that's an important space in our reading. Um, they're intentional, right? You hear, you read about intentional ambiguity of the text and all of that mm-hmm. and um, and intonation within the utterance. Uh, and so I just sense like, okay, this sense of silence in the text that this is actually another voice, um, I thought was really helpful. Another, uh, and I'll, I can talk about more about this later, is answerability, which is kind of, it's in the title. <laughs> but it's really, I think, that place of ethical response. Like, not only are these voices in dialogue, these, there's polyphonic voices, right? Many voices together, but like, are they really speaking into one another? And how how can I look for an ethics of response with some That's of nice. the harder stories. And so anyways, those are a couple of his terms that I thought um, are helpful in my work, um, for sure. And you have a a brief biography of Bakhtin at the end of your book uh, for people that are interested in digging into his life and significance a little more. Um, Yeah, it's interesting as you're talking, I was thinking about how intertextuality can is a broad category, you know, describing the way that texts evoke 
quote mm-hmm. from sites allude to each other, echo mm-hmm. each other. And and sometimes people debate whether whether that's intentional or unintentional and whether that matters. But you know, metaphor like in thinking of like a metaphor of what that yields, like you mm-hmm. could imagine intertextuality as the threads of scripture that are weaving like a single garment. And and that would potentially yield a merging of all the voices in the Bible, right? You're, all the threads right. are just one garment. Whereas a dialogue, which is Bakhtin's kind of primary metaphor, mm-hmm. is where the voices don't kind of merge into each other, but retain their distinctiveness. And so it, you know, it kind of feeds into thinking about what the canon even is. Is mm-hmm. the biblical canon a dialogue? Is it... Yeah where they where the voices are contributing to each other is it a fight where they're just arguing with each other and they're diametrically opposed right so or is it weaving mm. a single garment and and I don't know if you have thoughts on that question mm. of like what kind of canon this phenomenon of intertextuality yields have you thought like where do you sort of sit on on that question Right. No, I, it's such a good question. I teach a course, the Megalote. Um, oh, okay. And so that's like a really fun example of how very different texts are in dialogue, right? And a really important important part of uh, the Jewish tradition and how those uh, are seen as contributing to one another. And you, they're very different, right? You have like lamentations and songs and Esther, right? Um, and so kind of the metaphor I love to think about, and actually Brittany Melton used this, and right. I thought, oh, it's so fun when you read people that are that think in a similar way. Yeah, um, is as, as like texts around a table, and so each one is as important, right? And offering a different perspective, right? Yeah. And we see that with so much, even with like say Chronicles and Kings, like these important perspectives uh, contribute a really significant voice. And even and when I think about like. And, and this is not quite the canon, but when I think about like Hebrew gaps, right, in our reading, the literary artistry, uh, if there's an empty chair at the table, that that is an important voice as well. And so thinking about these texts and conversation, I think they contribute to this very robust dialogue. And we really need, right, we really need these different perspectives and voices and um, and maybe not necessarily in a fight, uh, but but definitely like lamentations might be fighting a bit with Deuter- the Deuter- Deuteronomy, right? Like yeah, like yeah. these are the curses, but like God, you've gone beyond the curses. Um, and so like I and um and actually I'm doing a little bit of work in that area at SBL actually with a friend that's a psychologist because uh, these strong feelings. It's like how does a community work through trauma and pain? Um, and how can we uh, uh, talk back to God in that sense, yeah. right? That Christine Mandalfa uh, book with Lamentations, it's so good. Um, but it's like, how can a community start to move towards those spaces and strong enough to ask a question at the end and not know what God, how God will respond? But but seeing that as this really important movement um, of, uh, of being able to name things, right? Not just, okay, we've sinned, we've messed up, we're wrong, you know? Yeah. But it's like, okay, but now I'm in a space where actually this is doesn't feel right, you know? So anyways, just yeah. that real honesty. And I think that's what I really appreciate about the canon uh, is these different contexts, different voices. We don't process linearly, right? Um, we process uh, in, in ways that, like say with grief, uh, we we kind of dance around in different spaces. We don't move, you know, one, two, three, four, mm-hmm. and now okay, oh, I'm near the end, and I'm moving on, right? It, it's very cyclical, and so and so. And I, anyways, I appreciate that about 
um, the canon. Anyways, I'm sure you have some great things to add to that as well. But yeah, I, I like your your comment there about the the chairs around the table, but also the empty chair, and mm-hmm. and that gets at the phenomenon of the ways that biblical writers strategically um, leave gaps that invite you as a reader to do some mm-hmm. work. And and biblical narrative is notoriously demanding on that front because the mm-hmm. narrator doesn't give you all that you want maybe as a reader. You know, we want nope. some moral evaluation. <laughs> uh, we, Absolutely. We want some like further explanation. What does God think about this? How are we supposed mm-hmm. to evaluate this? So perhaps the one of the ways it does that is by leaving gaps strategically that then invite you to do work as a reader, mm-hmm. but perhaps also to bring in other texts that are alluded to or evoked in mm-hmm. that text that creates the gaps. So you have to bring text together to converse. So this gets to right. one of the questions I had. Like you argue that, and, and here I'm quoting you, Ruth offers an alternative voice within the polyphonic nature of the canon. And mm-hmm. you say that this alerts readers to the intentional gaps at the end of Judges. So how, do, how does the book of Ruth expose gaps at the end of Judges? Or what are some of those gaps and how does Ruth expose them? Right. No, absolutely. As you know, um, and the reader or the listeners will be very aware, uh, yeah, there's a lot we want at the end of Judges that is just does not offer like you said, a moral assessment. I mean, there's a simple refrain, but I, as a, a woman <laughs> reading this, I'm like, I want more than that, right? Um, so Ruth really exposes the gaps by offering an alternative vision to a very similar problem. And this is kind of maybe summing up the very end of my work, but they both have a crisis of lineage, right? Um, and Ruth just goes about kind of responding to that problem in a very different way. And Judges 19.21, as I mentioned, has lots of difficult moments of silence. Um, I compare it to the horror film genre, actually, um, where there's these moments of anticipation and anxiety because of the silence. So for the the reader, you're just kind of like waiting. I'm waiting for there to be a response. And usually silence is a place you relax, reflect. But in Judges 19 through 21, it's doing the opposite, right? We're just getting agitated. We're thinking there should be more. Um, and so in my book, I actually ex- uh, use the example of artwork to describe the intentional Hebrew gap. These moments of intentional ambiguity in the story with the writer, uh, where we are invited in, right, to, to, to use our voice that something is wrong, something is not right. Um, you know, it's, is it okay that I just witnessed this, this Pelagesh being chopped up? Like, I don't, I don't, I think that's kind of awful, right? Like, is anyone else seeing this? Is it just me? Um, it seems really out of sync with loving God and neighbor, you know, that vibe we try to like hold on to in the old Testament. Uh, and I, sorry, this is really silly, but like in the words of Ron Burgundy from Anchorman, I'm like, this problem is kind of a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) Um, he says he's kind of a big deal, but yeah. Uh, so this intonation is this liminal space that exists between what's said and left and what's unsaid. Um, and it really invites us into it. And so in this artwork, I actually was in Sonoma, California, And there was this piece of outdoor artwork that was actually in response to another piece. And it was named Apollo by Albert Paley. And what it does is it is this giant outdoor sculpture that has different dimensions of graphic imagery, similar to the original Matisse um, painting. 
but it has these giant gaps in the middle. And what the placard said was that Paley was particularly attracted to the play of positive and negative space. And it says here in Depot Park in Sonoma, the sculpture leads our eyes to take in not only the branches of the surrounding trees, but the shape of the sky between them. And that's such a, I think, a beautiful example of what the silence and the gaps do. How does, you know, the space of Ruth uh, play into this refrain? And when you say that the space of Ruth, what do you mean? There? Yes. So I'm seeing space or silence in judges in different right. spaces. And then in Ruth, it would be the leaves and the trees correspond inside those spaces. That fill in that that sort of empty space that is the so so judges is the sculpture right oh that's a nice way to think of it yeah that that cre- that leaves certain things unfinished or gap that when you sort of see branches of Ruth coming in through the background it creates yeah. something new <laughs> there you go right? <laughs> absolutely and so with intertextuality we see this in key like lexical or thematic connections um, and I can give one example uh, the whole speak to the heart which is such a fascinating. Um, idiom. It's uh, one that you see in the very beginning of Judges 19, where the Levite goes to, you know, he's angered as Pelagesh and she's out the door and he goes to speak to her heart. And it's like, oh, you know, like, although I know in the biblical text, it's often is just to curry favor, convince someone to come back with you. But at the same time, it's interesting that that's his intention. And not one word is spoken to her except get up when she's on the threshold after she's right. been abused all night. She's never, that's like, he he just like shouts that at her. Uh, so it's fascinating that, so that idiom is also found in the book of Ruth. And just in general, it's about nine times in the Hebrew Bible. And it's usually, it's, it's just a very interesting one because it's often um, spoken of, well, it's always spoken of by a man in a powerful position. Uh, so in four Four occurrences, we have it in uh, like Second Chronicles, King Hezekiah speaking words to encourage the hearts of the wise Levites. We have Second Samuel 19, David through the grief of his son Absalom is encouraging the hearts of his servants. And then we have an interesting shift where every almost every dialogue use of this idiom is mm-hmm. speak to the heart is by a figure in power. And then in Ruth, it's an idiom spoken by herself, a woman and a foreigner. Uh, most often, so it's most often in places of those in royalty and political power. And here in Ruth 2, right, you've spoken to the heart of your servant, right, she says to Boaz. And so it's just interesting that we we see that connection, right, especially as we think through Judges, not one woman speaks. Then we have the book of Ruth, where it has the most female dialogue of any book in the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. And she is the one uttering these types of things. And so yeah, anyway, so yeah. that's just like one example of some of the things that I've seen. So and, and just a, a quick translation point, the term that usually gets translated concubine, do, are you leaving that untranslated for a particular reason because it's ambiguous or what's the what's going on there? Right. It is. Uh, it's a tough one to translate. And I just it's a unique term in the Old Testament. And it's one where it's often women that are, they end in very dark stories. The work mm-hmm. of um, Isabel Hamley is really good in this area if anyone who wants yeah. to kind of chase it down. But it's uh, it's really hard to figure out the status, all of that. And so yeah. I prefer to leave her a bit ambiguous. And it's odd that there's a Levite. He's going after this Pelagesh. And where's the other wives? Like, where is she at? Like, like yeah. you know what I mean? Is she among a group of wives? Like, there's just... 
I think, so much intentional ambiguity with this story, which kind of leads into some of the things with genre that I've kind of focused on. But um, but yeah, so I just leave it untranslated and as is. <laughs> yeah. So, l- let's go to that question of genre. You you call the end of Judges, so well, the Judges 19 to 21, and mm-hmm. Ruth, you situate within the Mashal genre, like a proverb right. or a parable. Um, mm-hmm. And you write that these chapters are designed to be interrogated, discussed, and assessed within its overarching canonical framework, you know, speaking about this this particular genre. Mm-hmm. So what what led you to make that genre designation and what, what significance does that hold? Right. Oh, no, great question. Um, actually, this kind of goes back to studying under Ian Proven in class, um, <laughs> uh, just kind of struggling with the text and what do you do with it? Um, and I remember his advice and I give it to my students all the time. You get to the point where you can look over the edge. You realize it's not that scary, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, especially for those of us who may have been taught to understand the text in a certain way. Yeah. Like, don't question it, right? This is what it's supposed to be doing. Um, and then he would always encourage us. I remember if a theory is presented to you that doesn't sit quite right, um, and I might be sort of making it into my own here, but but mm-hmm. is rather than get frustrated or whatever, it actually be- can become an opportunity to offer a different perspective. Um, and of course, this takes time and research. But for those that are willing, I realize there's a place to offer your voice. And so with the genre, I just remember leaving leaving Regent and and then sitting with these texts and thinking, what is happening here, right? Yeah. Um, and so there's been lots of different ways it's been approached. Uh, but yeah, what what is this kind of literature? Um, and so one of the things that kind of um, hit me was I was thinking, I was, I was reading um, Block's commentary on Judges, and it mm-hmm. is a wonderful commentary. But he did make a statement about the genre that it didn't quite sit right with me. And with this lingering question, and he basically concludes that Ruth cannot be categorized as a mashal because the narrator narrator makes no plea to interpret this account as one. And so basically the idea was rejected because of the grounds of silence. Yeah. And yet I thought this is interesting because it's precisely the silence and the gaps that is so foundational of a characteristic of the mashal genre. And so it just made me kind of wonder a little bit more. And then I thought, huh, I wonder, are there other uh, parable-like stories in the Old Testament that maybe aren't intrinsically called a mashal, right, but have those type of characteristics? And then I kind of looked into that and definitely uh, found some uh, that, you know, uh, we have David and the, you know, Nathan and the prophet, right, yeah. <laughs> with the sheep. Yeah. And uh, and that's not really called one. Um and so, yeah, so anyway, so that kind of made me get me thinking about that. And also the fact that these last three chapters, every, almost every person is, um, it's a not, uh, it's, there, it's characterized by anonymity, excuse me. Uh, we don't have names, right? Like it's such a strange story, right? And so, and so it just had a lot of similar kind of qualities of that genre. So that really just got me thinking uh, that in form and function that it really, it really has these kind of characteristics. And then I actually happened upon some others that had thought that Candy Queen Sutherland, um, working off of others' work, who had kind of was thinking that as well. And I thought, oh, okay, I think there's Good something night. here and something to be said about about this uh, genre. Yeah. Yeah. So what, how does that impact our reading of this part of the book? Like if we if we call it a proverb or a mashal, all right, mm-hmm. let's keep the, it's not just a proverb, not just a parable, but encompassing something around that idea Um does that tell us something about the function of this section of judges and or Ruth 
Um, right. And it, like, does it make them more didactic in nature right. or what? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think what you said is key. It's They're more didactic in nature. It's really inviting us to engage, uh-huh. I think, in a deeper level with the story, uh, not to just to read it for information, right? Or yeah. this is this is what happened next. Uh, but actually, it, it's almost like at the end of Judges, there's this giant, like, pregnant pause of like, how you know, what say you <laughs> kind yeah. of a thing. Um, and so it's really... Uh, and just with the different qualities, I think then we can read sometimes a little more closely for the irony uh, that might be within the story, uh, some some different things going on and looking overall within the whole, you know, story of judges, um, just kind of watching for, oh, OK, you know, like as women's voices disappear, violence heightens. Right. And so and this disintegration of a nation just is really coming to pieces, yeah. you know, almost annihilating a whole tribe of our own um, who is the other it gets very complicated, right? At the end right. of Judges. Um, and so it sort of, everything turns up on itself. And so I think reading these with that in mind, I think I think the sure. thing I, I really appreciate about that genre is is what we're invited to participate in that conversation. And with the the book of Ruth, I, I wouldn't see it as like perhaps the form of a, of the Mashal genre, but it functions as that, right? Yeah. Like it's it's inviting that response. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, you know, hearing you, talk about like inviting a response it it makes me think of the end of 19 where Mm. after this levite's concubine has been cut into 12 pieces and sent around to the tribes everyone who sees it says nothing like this has ever happened or been seen since we came out of egypt and then it ends with the phrase consider it take counsel and speak Mm -hmm. up so there's Mm -hmm. that common there's the call there to speak up and you know, in its context, it's presumably directed to the Israelites who are hearing this, but it also kind of becomes a call to the reader to speak up about what's going on in this text. So I don't know if you have thoughts on that part of this story or, you know, what right. how it's functioning, but it, it certainly yeah. feels like an invitation. Oh, no, absolutely. And I think that's where even as readers, and even if we think in the different different spaces of thinking, like if I was if I was an Israelite in exile, yeah. right? Like, how would I be reading this text? Um, and then if I'm thinking about it within the period of Judges, like, especially with what I've done with the book of Ruth as this yeah. place of ethical response that you, you know, you have, like, there's so many things wrong, right? With just how the Levite <laughs> responds yeah. and all of that. And then you're, you know, as readers, they're hoping, I think, that we see all the things that's done that, that you know, like, Benjamin's like, hey, you know, there's no witnesses. Like, I don't want to just offer our people for you to slaughter. And then, yeah. you know, it just keeps going downhill from there. They make oaths, this great oath, which is so fascinating because you have different oaths throughout the book of Judges and weeping. I remember um, tracing them through yeah. in this book. And at the very end, it culminates in this mysterious great oath and great weeping, right? Like, so it's just, uh, and then there's silence, right? And so I just think it's just, you just see this disintegration of, of leadership and all of these different things. Um, and I know some have thought like, oh, is it just the, you know, the canonization of Israel? And I'm like, oh, I think it's, there's so many layers to think through with that. Um, but right. even even just, you know, the basics of absolutely, right? Leadership is bad. Uh, and and you know, different people are being oppressed. Um, but then also, yeah. But but I think thinking about this story in different contexts is is I don't know. I just think it yeah. offers so many different ways that it can, yeah, yeah, provide space. As you know, we uh, sometimes do a speed round, so I have some oh. speed round <laughs> questions for you. 
Um, so just to switch gears here for a moment, what's one book that you just can't get out of your head? Oh, do you know what? One book I can't get out of my head. I have really enjoyed Amy Cottrell's Uncovering Violence. Mm, mm, yeah, that's this a good has one. been. I I think one of the things I have really appreciated about it is just reading narratives as an ethical project. I think she does such a great job of um, also uh, inviting the reader's response, right? <clears throat> like, what do these texts do to us as readers as well? Yeah. Anyways, yep. I think that's one that I just keep coming back to. I um, Yeah, it's, it's just really fascinating. Yeah, it's a good one. What's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? Oh, this is that question. Oh, so good. <laughs> oh, probably going to be in the chorus of all that have gone before me. But um, I think the search for the <laughs> the different authors of the different sources, I just think we just need to let that <laughs> let that go. Uh, um, so yeah. I have I have some clothing related questions because you, you oh, talk okay. about in your in your in your bio and I see some of your publications are around dress hermeneutics, the clothing hermeneutics. Right. OK, so I have questions about your clothing preferences. So uh, Velcro <laughs> shoes or laces? Ooh, that's a good one. I will say laces. I like to work hard. Um, bon- uh, wearing a bonnet or a large feather dressy hat? Ooh, I would say large feathers. Uh, gloves or hands-free? Definitely hands-free. Okay. <laughs> um, socked Socks with individuated toe provision or just normal socks? Oh, I'm thinking normal socks. Okay, um... So a three-day backpacking trip in the summer in mm-hmm. Texas where you have to go either barefoot or with insulated winter boots. What's it going to be? Oh, my goodness. Definitely insulated winter boots. Can I tell you why? Why? Now that I have lived in Texas for a few weeks, there's a lot of bugs. Oh, yeah. There are so many bugs, and I am not a fan. All right. <laughs> so, so cockroaches, things like that, definitely. Three days I of will. backpacking in Texas with insulated winter boots. Oh, I'm going to let my feet sweat. Um, <laughs> I don't so, mind. So you were in ministry, uh, like in, in youth ministry, is that right? You did some youth ministry? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So do you Lots have any- Lots of youth ministry. Any good yeah. pranks, like from the kids, or that you learned from them, or that you played on them? Oh, yeah. Well, here's a fun one. Um, the, do you remember that magic nail polish that you can put on? No. It's like clear. Okay. It's by Del Sol. And then when it hits the sun, you have full on like red nails. Oh. And very- so putting that on, uh, you know, when you have like the sleepover things, which people probably never do that anymore. I'm dating myself, right? Yeah. Like probably years ago. Uh, putting that on and then, you know, thinking, you know, they think they got you and they pranked you and they're like, oh, you know, feeling cool about it. And then later you like get out in the sun, especially the, the you know, middle school boys and go, well, you know, you know, put your hand out the window for a minute <laughs> and then like, bam, red fingernail polish. So oh, that's anyways, great. just silly things like that. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Uh, John Calvin or Irvine Shablatsam? Ooh, that's really hard. I'm going to go with Calvin. <laughs> OK. What's the uh, most significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years? Ooh, that's good. I, looking around, I might actually, I really love Childs, mm-hmm. his work with Canon. I am so, yeah, I think that was just such a pivot, pivot point for us. What's something most people misunderstand about life in Waco? Oh, that's a good one. What they misunderstand is that, 
oh, I don't know. There's a lot of things they probably get correct. <laughs> it's very hot. Um, but I think that maybe that people aren't as friendly. Like it's Texas is friendly, but it's even more so than I would have ever imagined. Oh, really? Like they're wonderful. Oh, Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Like I don't know if you think of Texas as these rugged individuals, but yeah, I it's just been an amazing community to jump into. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, and then what's the difference between a hippo and a zippo? Oh, I'm thinking um, a zippo's quicker. <laughs> so one is really heavy. One is really heavy yeah. and the other is a little lighter. Oh, I love that. <laughs> That's right. really cute. So let's get back to the book now. So okay. um, we, we talked about, uh, you talked about speaking to the heart as a phrase that occurs in both these books. Um, are there mm-hmm. kind of keyword links that would connect the story of the the rape and dismemberment of the concubine in Judges 19 to 21 and the genocide on the tribe of Benjamin section with Ruth? Are there linguistic connections that that tie those two together that you found interesting? Right, right. So I think that um, some of the things which has been fascinating. And so I don't know if, yeah, you're probably meeting with Ruth, but I was just thinking, <laughs> it's okay yeah. if I take a different direction, is yeah, sure. just this detailed investigation of the Hebrew verb to cut. Mm, yeah. Mata, which, yeah, it's it's very interesting. Yeah, actually, I should jump I should jump in and say that yeah. you were making intertextual connections with other texts too. So like there are yes, yes. gaps in 1921 that invite other texts into the picture. So yeah, go right, anywhere. Right, right. That I think, okay, yeah, thanks. So that really, I think, focus in on the horror of this story. Like, we all know it's bad, but then even looking a little closer at some of the words, you're like, oh, wow, it's even worse than I would imagine. So um, so when you look at this word, uh, kind of tracing it through, it's often um, just found within a wider scope. We see it as a term that generally occurs in sacrificial, priestly, and prophetic contexts. Um, like Saul and First Samuel eleven seven, um, and it really offers this interesting religious political voice. Uh, thinking about this dismemberment of a woman, um, it's found in the Pentateuch and Exodus and Leviticus, and it's the, the root is found in the PL form, meaning to cut up, divide into pieces. And in Exodus, its depiction is that of the consecration of priests. And so, what's interesting is that the horrific and abusive symbolic use of a woman's body really terrorizes the reader even more with the actions of how she is cut up, equated to sacrificial animal slaughter. Mm-hmm. Ben's Ben's bodies are not abused in this way. Um, so the gap for dialogue for this voiceless and nameless woman really, I think, is even stronger when we just even look at that one word throughout the corpus. Yeah. Um, and that's where looking at Ruth as a voice of canonical answerability, right, where here, you know, all of these awful things transpire. And they culminate with executing Hiram right within their own tribal confederation. And then we have Ruth, who is so interesting because there's similar like thematic and lexical connections. Same progenitive problem, right? Uh, there is there's a crisis of lineage. And then Ruth answers, in a sense, with this chesed, right? Like this loving kindness for her mother-in-law to raise the name of the dead. So you have the book of Judges ending with this death, like dismemberment, yeah. death, kidnapping, yeah. all these awful things. And then the book of Ruth, right, this almost self-sacrificial act, um, to to, and it ends actually with a genealogy and a birth, right? So it's yeah. just like really interesting to pair these together. 
And and I don't I don't want the readers to mishear me. Ruth definitely has a lot of violence humming in the background, right? Mm-hmm. It is not just this sweet little yeah. story of Yeah, when she goes out to the field, it's implied oh, that, absolutely. that it's a violent a dangerous place. Absolutely, right? He's like, stay with the stay with my servants. Um and so it's uh and also what she does is very risky. Um and it's fascinating when you think about different foreign women throughout the Old Testament, these acts of risk that the like, Israel people of Israel would not have made it very far, right? I think of Zipporah, right. right? Rahab, we have Ruth, we have Tamar, right? And Judah in Genesis 38, which I think has a lot of interesting connections, but where they take this courageous risk for the Nahalat, right? The the uh, the inheritance to go right. forward. So their their names won't be erased. Um, from memory. And so, yeah. So anyways, I just see, yeah, Ruth is a very fascinating case study with with these three chapters of Judges. And, and what do you make of the phrase uh, that recurs there at the end of Judges 17 to 21? In those days, uh, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So like, how is that, how is that phrase functioning? What is it doing with right, that? Right, right, right. No, absolutely. It's repeated, as you notice, throughout and it gives sort of a, a bit of assessment of the horror stories, right? Um, it's like, oh, you know, bummer for leadership. But from an exilic perspective, right, you see that the ultimate, ultimately um, the northern and southern kings are going to collapse. So reading it from that perspective, you're like, well, nothing really has changed, right? But in that moment, within the period of judges, right, it's looking at, right, maybe a king will be the one to answer this, um, you know, this issue, right? Um, and so what's fascinating is, Sort of the answer comes in the form of this foreign woman, Ruth, right? Uh, is sort of like Ruth becomes this birth story to that question. Mm. Um, but yeah, but you have no king, failure failure of the leadership of rule, if you play off yeah. the Michal nuances, right? Um, you have this irony of utter immortality, as some have suggested, right? This complete canonization of Israel, Um so many commentators see the end of Judges and the refrain, again, calling for, for a response of some sort, right? Within the literary context of Judges, as I mentioned, Ruth, I think, really is an interesting response. Not yeah. the response, but a response. Yeah, that's a good, so in the, yeah. good point Go about, um, sorry to jump in, but um, yeah, no, absolutely. just the idea that there's no king in Israel and that that's set in a story about violence against women and that the res- one response to that is the story of Ruth, this Moabite woman who, through whom we see the sort of lineage of David then. So, yeah, interesting. Right, right. And it's interesting, too, because the oath she gives to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Again, when you look at the forms of oaths, we see a similar one with Jonathan and David, right? And we see uh, Jonathan really like relegating or releasing power to David, yeah. right? Like, and, and then Ruth does that as well. But again, like, it is the only time an oath of that magnitude is spoken by a woman. And so I just think it's such a fascinating, you know, when you start teasing apart these interesting places where yeah. uh, Ruth is a very unique book. Um, yeah. And I know, um, yeah, and, and even like with all of her placements all over the different canons, right? She had, she, the book, sorry, mm-hmm. the not the woman, the book. I always, my, <laughs> my supervisor would always be like, watch that. Because, um, you know, talk about the person or the or the book. Yeah, it gets, it gets muddled for me sometimes. Um, but uh, but but because of like Ruth had such acceptance, the scroll of Ruth and so <laughs> many different canon lists, right? Whether it was placed next to Judges or or we have with Proverbs with the Shet Ha'il, is that it's a Ruth is an important voice 
for the community, right? Like, um, and just thinking creatively of a path forward uh, that really kind of shifts some of the legal things um, in creative ways. And so I think, um, yeah, so I think that, yeah, Ruth is just fascinating that way. But but anyways, but back to your your question, many commentators see, right, calling for this response. Um, and it, again, like, yeah, as, as you kind of touched on with me, Ruth offers one response, right, in the form of yeah. this foreign Moabite woman. And we see so much irony of insider-outsider. Israel has become, in a way, under the ban, uh, which reminds me of Achan and Joshua, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have this outsider, Rahab, exhibiting fortitude, courageous risk, bringing salvation to the insider group. And then Ruth, right? We have this response in the form of a festal scroll. Um, so, yeah, it just, I don't know. I just think it's interesting uh, that, yeah, this refrain with leadership and kingship and then thinking about Ruth as one of the responses to this problem, I think, I don't know. I just think there's lots of ways we can tease that out. Yeah. I hadn't thought about one of the points you're raising here. And that is, so you have, if you put Judges 19:21 and Ruth together, you have mm-hmm. on the one hand, the lack of king as a problem that Ruth provides an answer to. You also have the insider destruction centered around Gibeah, mm-hmm. which is Saul's area. And right. then Ruth has an answer with a Davidic line. So is that also part of the answer that Ruth is giving to judges. Right. Oh, yeah, I think so. Um, Because as you know, like there's so many different ways Ruth has been understood. Like, is it a polemic against the Ezra and Nehemiah policies? Um, Is it right? Like legitimizing the Davidic lineage. So I do think that, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of those um, kind of responses within that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, That Saul isn't isn't going to quite be the one to. to do the job. Not going to work out. Uh, so what no. <laughs> are some of the implications of your study for issues around gendered violence, uh, especially as we encounter it in scripture? Yeah, no, thank you for that. I um, I think that one of my, um, what I imagine my hope for possible implications around this issue of gendered violence is that we can deal honestly with our encounters with it in scripture and become better readers of the ancient texts. Actually, Matt, I think in your book, you talk about slowing down with the violent texts, like really sinking into them and navigating our way through the, I don't know, I don't know if you use mountain imagery, but like probably through the terrain. Yeah. <laughs> Some hiking, not yeah. barefoot uh, no. with proper gear. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I think it, um, anyways, but this invitation to sit longer with these texts to map our way through. And so what I hope is that, um, is that, uh, that this can be an encouraging case study that maybe others could jump off of, you know, I don't think my answer is the be all end all, of course, but just a way uh, to be thinking about how to put these texts in dialogue to offer other responses and that we don't need to just sit with difficult texts and be like, well, that's what that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what God yeah. said. But but that there actually are other voices in the canon to offer other perspectives. And I think that actually makes a rich reading um, and one that, you know, perhaps as we almost like this dialogue of wisdom, right? Like how we can move forward with better ways of thinking about these things together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jenny, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your book, and I appreciate your work and what you're doing here, and wish you all the best with your forthcoming books as well. This stuff, you're, maybe you want to just give uh, listeners a quick taste of what you're working on at the moment. 
just the subject yeah. area that you're writing. Absolutely. So yeah, uh, clothing, looking at clothing in the megalote, um, how clothing kind of has really some interesting uh, ways of being its own character within those stories. Um and then also a book on chesed, uh, kind of like a little bit of a different approach to Old Testament theology. I originally thought I'd do my PhD uh, with that, and it, I'm so glad I didn't because I just needed to sit sit with that for about 10 years. <laughs> um, so anyway, so stay tuned, and that hopefully will be coming out in about a year and a half. Well, thanks so much. We look forward to that. All right. Thanks so much, Matt. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.